Hi, I'm Helena Cobbin, the owner of Just World Books. I want to tell you that we're planning to revive our podcast series here at Just World Books, hoping to bring you the voices and up-to-date insights of our authors on a much more regular basis than we have been doing recently. You can find our podcast library, learn all the details about the fabulous books we're publishing, and even buy copies of all our books for yourself or for your friends at our website, www.justworldbooks.com. That is www.justworldbooks.com. So today, to kick off the revival of our podcast series, I have a real treat for you. For three weeks in January, Miko Peled, author of The General Sun, Journey of an Israeli in Palestine, made a fast-paced and fascinating trip to Israel, Palestine, and also Jordan. So, he started out at his family's home in West Jerusalem and also reconnected with a number of social justice and Palestinian rights activists there and in the occupied West Bank. Then he traveled to to Amman, Jordan. He gave a book talk about the General Sun at a well-known bookstore in Amman and was even interviewed by a reporter from Jordanian TV, which aired more than five minutes of the interview on their English-language news broadcast. A few days later, our intrepid traveler caused much surprise by popping up in Gaza. Even though I'm his publisher, I had no idea how he got there. So in the podcast, Miko talks a little about the difficult trip he made to get to Gaza and shares some of what he learned during his three-day visit there. From Gaza, Miko returned to Jerusalem, and soon after that, he was at Brown University in the United States where he met for the first time with a long-time hero of his, the world-renowned conductor, musician, and peacemaker, maestro Daniel Barenboim. By that point, sadly, Miko had almost completely lost his voice. Yesterday, February the 1st, was the first day he really felt like talking at any length. So I got him on the phone to ask him about his travels during January. And I also invited him to reflect on what he's seen and heard during the 10 months that he's been on the road doing promotional activities around his truly transformational memoir, The General Sun, Journey of an Israeli in Palestine. Here's how our conversation went. So I'm on the phone with uh, Miko Pellet. was lucky to get him on the phone. He's been extremely busy for the whole of the past uh, three months, the whole of the past year, really. And Miko is just back from a trip to... Um, Jerusalem and points around there, which uh, some of us followed some of it on Facebook and Twitter, um, but there was so much, Miko, that you couldn't write on Facebook and Twitter because you were so busy having those experiences. Tell us about the the highlights. Um, Well, let's see. The highlights, I would say, um, have to be uh, speaking in Jordan. I'm on Jordan first. It was my first it was my first um, event speaking in an Arab country in front of an Arab audience, and it was wonderful. It was a great experience. It was um, it was interesting. It was heartwarming, and uh, it's a, it's, it, was, it was a real pleasure speaking in front of an Arab audience because they're so. Um, it, it, it was it, at least the audience that I spoke in front of was, was so positive and eager to eager to hear the story and eager to figure out how we move forward. 
which is really good. I spoke at three events, one at a house, one at a bookstore, and then one at the Jerusalem um, Forum, which is a, a forum of Palestinians who are very active, and so that was very interesting. It was the first time they had an Israeli speak. They said it was the first time they had an Israeli speak in Jordan at all, um, outside of being, you know, the you know, Israeli, uh, you know, prime minister or something like that, you know, but somebody just to come and speak. So that was very interesting and then and, and encouraging, and I had a really good time <clears throat> doing that. I met some fascinating people, Palestinians of all all walks of life. Um, I visited the Gaza refugee camp in in Jordan near Jarash, which is um, I've been telling people that I've heard about the Nakba and I've met people who have gone through the Nakba, but having seen the Gaza refugee camp, I've, it was the first time that I actually saw the Nakba, like with my own two eyes. The 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 the, the terrible poverty, the despair, the hopelessness, the lack of care by anybody by being just, you know, uh, an entire refugee camp, an entire population of 40,000 people just left alone with no possibility to to move out of the camp, no possibility to bring income, no possibility to have work. I mean, it's, it's just po such poverty and despair that, you know, people can't afford the matches to light the fire to make tea. I mean, it's just unbelievable. So that was um, that was part of that, and then, and I could go on and on talking about that and what I'd like to, you know, what I think can and should be done. But uh, then, two days after that, I returned to Jerusalem and then went on a, on an expedition to to to, uh, to Gaza. Now that is really exciting, uh, your trip to Gaza. But I just want to back up a moment because in Amman you were on. Jordan National Television, which that must have been right. quite a thing because, you know, there is this strong um, resistance in Jordan in general to what they call obviously normalization with Israeli citizens. But there you were. And what kind of response did you get? How did it feel to be doing that? Well, I think uh, it was great. Uh, they contacted me, and um, and they came to the bookstore where I spoke, Reader's Bookstore in Amman, and interviewed me right there and then. And like, yeah, and then if you saw the link, it's right on the right in the evening news um, that they aired it. But I think you know the the, um, the thing that broke the ice, so to speak, and I think allowing me to come and speak and allowing this uh, to happen is the fact that mine is a decidedly anti-Zionist point of view. And um, I was told by my friends at the Jerusalem Forum, too, that for them, when they, they, they discussed having me, you know, again, bringing an Israeli to come and speak, was, was uh, there was a lot of this debate whether or not they wanted to do this because I'm an Israeli. But again, the... Um, they, they've heard my point of view, they know me, and they know that it's a completely anti-Zionist point of view, which opens up possibilities. I think um, that's the key. Once we move beyond the Zionist paradigm, then there are a lot of possibilities that are available in terms of cooperating uh, with people around the Arab world and, and in solving the Israeli-Palestinian question at all. So that was the, that was the thing that, uh, that allowed it all to happen. Yeah, I guess... Um it, it's clear that 
certainly in my case, most of the Palestinians, the vast majority of the Palestinians that I know have no problem with Jewish people as Jewish people. Um, but with people who, who support the kind of the Zionist project of colonial expansion, that's what they have the problem with. So I'm really glad that the people you met in Jordan were able to make those kind of distinctions and uh, recognize you as a as somebody who is working in the same trench for um, human rights and equality among all peoples. I mean, it must. I, I just wish I could have been there at some of your events. It must have been really heartwarming for for them and for you to to be doing that. So anyway, on to Gaza. Um, how much can you tell us um, for? this podcast about how you got there and um, then obviously tell us all about what you did when you were there. Well, I've been in touch with people in Gaza uh, for some time about the possibility of visiting, not really clear about how that might work, but I had, having tried and failed to go in twice already, and with my predicament as an Israeli, I can't go through Israel, and with the Egyptians being unpredictable at best, I kind of resigned myself to uh going through the tunnel if you know entering through tunnels if that was if that was made available if that came up and it did come up and a friend asked me if i would if i would be if i would agree to go through the tunnel and i said yes and so but i didn't want to fly to cairo so we met in uh in sinai in taba i flew to a lot crossed the border into sinai uh met a friend of mine with a driver from rafah and uh, we had to go through some, the usual, the driver had to go through some harassment by the uh, Egyptian security. But eventually we drove, um, we drove, you know, halfway around the Sinai to get to Gaza where I could have driven from my house in Jerusalem an hour and 15 minutes and, and would have been there. It took about 14 hours altogether for the strip for me to arrive at, uh, at Rafah on the Egyptian side and then, and then, um, and then across into Gaza itself. So that in itself was quite an adventure, and that was even before getting to Gaza, which was the main point of the trip. And then um, <clears throat> I stayed with a friend in in in, in Gaza, and um, traveled. You know, they took me around, went around with people to see to see to see the place, to see the city, to see the strip, to see the destruction, uh, visit families in the refugee camps. Almost every family has a terribly tragic story of loss and, and loss of life, loss of loved ones, families who have lost 12, 13, 15 loved ones to Israeli violence is, is not uncommon. Uh, horrific stories of people being used as human shields and, and, and other horrors that, that they suffered by the Israeli army during the different invasions over the years. And at the same time, uh, when I spoke, I spoke at two different places, and uh, both times, uh, once again, this, the, the, the sense that I got from the audience was a deep desire to resolve the problem and move on so that we can, that, that we can uh, move on and, and start living. At the same time, you know, people in Gaza are quite happy that um, – the impression that I got that the that the way the way Hamas has been has been handling the resistance. Uh quite proud of the fact that the Qassam rockets have done what they've done, which is really isn't very much, but it's getting better and they're doing more. 
and it's hard to blame them because Israel is leaving is leaving the people in Gaza very little hope, and so other than fighting for their life and fighting back through armed resistance, there's really very little that they can do. And again, not that that armed resistance is that effective, but at least it gives a sense of, of doing something. Um, and that's very interesting. And the fact so that the Israeli attack wasn't able to really harm the Qassam rockets or the Qassam brigades very much. So the Israeli attacks, even though they're so brutal, they weren't really that effective. So this is all part of the, it's all part of the picture. It's all part of that mosaic that, 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 that lives within Gaza. And then realizing that, you know, you have almost two million people there who are, who rely on a, on a, on a web of tunnels. Some, well, I was told that there are about 1,500 tunnels with, you know, that exist in that very narrow boundary of less than 10 kilometers between the Gaza Strip and Egypt. And that's how everything is brought in, people and, and goods and oil and money and everything else. And it's monitored by a government office that's in charge of the of the tunnels. And it's um, there's a fee that you pay, and then there's certain hours that people cross, and certain hours that goods cross. So it is monitored and it is controlled. Um, so, so, so how was your experience of going through a tunnel? Was it like very? Um, did you have to crawl on your hands and feet? Was it like very, very claustrophobic, or was it you know actually quite a large and easy? Uh, a large space and easy to get through. Well, the, the tunnel I crossed was probably about six foot high, maybe a little bit more, and two, three people could, you know, walk across easily. So it wasn't very narrow or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And the, the walk itself is no more than maybe three or four minutes. Actually, less than when you have to cross at Eretz, which which is a, another really terrifying experience. <laughs> I've never done that. It's very, very, very. It's not very long. I mean, it's a less than a five-minute walk, um, and it's well lit, and um, you know, you just walk. It's all paved in wood, so that was uh, that was really not a big deal. The getting there, right. going through the Egyptian authorities. Um, well, a lot of Sinai is very lawless right now, so yeah, I'm, that's that's a little hair-raising. That is not particularly pleasant. But again, most of Sinai is also very empty, so most of the drive is you, you don't see anybody and you, you don't see any cars. It's rare that you see a car, mm -hmm. you know, passing by or or people at all until you get to Rafah, you know, which is very populated. So, so when you were in Gaza, Miko, um, what's what? How did it differ from what you had expected? It didn't really. I mean, it was like being in any, in any other Palestinian city, really, except that there's a lot more destruction, and there is there's less. I mean, people are more restricted in their in in, in their movement and in their abilities to live. But um, you know, in terms of the traffic and the people and the and the and the life itself, it's not. It wasn't very different than any other place. The refugee camps. You know, both Jabalia, Shata. I mean, there it's 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 really depressing because there's a lot of poverty, and sadness, and and um, and a sense of hopelessness. And in talking to some people, certainly there's a, um, a sense that nothing but war, an all-out war, is going to save them, and solve the problem. Uh, and that's perfectly understandable since Israel doesn't present any other possibility. Uh, but life goes on, and like I said, people are quite pleased with the way the Hamas, uh, Hamas government is functioning. 
uh, roads are being built, and uh, the policemen are, are in the in the intersections are are making sure traffic flows. And I mean, those sorts of things are are taking place in 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 as normal a fashion as you could hope, and maybe even better than some other countries that don't even face the kind of difficulties that that, that Gaza faces. Um, were Were you there when uh, the Hamas leader Khaled Mishal visited? Um, I seem to recall you were you were there at um, maybe just about the same time or not. I was there a little bit afterwards, a little bit after a few. It was about uh-huh. a week after that. Yeah, I was there about a week after that. So you can uh, like you you could talk politics with people, or people seem to be kind of scared of talking politics. How did you find it? You know the the quality of those discussions. I've never, I haven't encountered any problem talking politics with anybody. Politics is everything. We talk politics all the time with everybody and with everything. And um, there was no issue at all. There was no, didn't seem to be any restriction. And there wasn't a sense of, 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 uh, of strain at all in, any, in anything. I mean, even going through the tunnels, which is, you know, seems almost, uh, almost taken out of some kind of a, you know, some kind of a movie, Everything is was was handled in a very relaxed and very very efficient and very almost casual way. I mean, I didn't get a sense at all that there was any any fear or tension or anything like that um, on the Palestinian side at all. Not in talking politics, not in meeting people, not in me giving a lecture. I mean, it was not an issue um, at all for anybody that I seen. Uh, the I, I was I gave a couple of interviews, one to the. Um, I think it's called the Anatolia, Anatolia, or Anatolia news agency, which I guess is a Turkish mm-hmm. news agency that spreads. And I know my interview was spread in, and 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 published in different places. And then a couple of other outlets interviewed me. I forget which ones. Um, while I was there, but I didn't get a sense at all of of of, um, of any kind of restrictions on what is being said or anything like that at all. And I guess uh, a little bit before you were there, they had the uh, the anniversary of uh, Fatah's founding, and they they had a big um, demonstration or, or gathering in in Gaza for that as well. So I mean, it, it seems like the the political situation is evolving and kind of interesting there. And then you left Gaza, and like just a couple of days later or so, it seemed you were at Brown University on the east coast of the United States at an event with Daniel Barenboim, <laughs> which must have been amazing. It was. I, I was hoping, I've uh, been hoping to meet Daniel Barenboim for many years um, because of his work with the Palestinian issue and his being outspoken and brave on this issue. And then when I got the invitation to go to Brown to participate in this event that they, um, they call Dissonance and Harmony, mm-hmm. Um, so they had uh, three events over three evenings, and then they had um, uh, rehearsals of the East-West Divan or West-East Divan Orchestra, and then a concert, uh, or two concerts, but one that I went to before I left. And that was a wonderful, heartless, you know, heartwarming uh, experience. Um, it was just wonderful all through, you know. I mean, um, I don't know if you know... Um, uh, Edward and uh, Mariam Saeed's daughter, uh, who's the uh, Najla. So she gave the first evening. She did a monologue of of a play she wrote, which was absolutely wonderful. Kind of an autobiography of her own life, growing up being the daughter of Edward Said. An excellent, excellent monologue. 
And in the second evening, I spoke along with uh, Ezzedin Abulesh, and Daniel spoke a little bit as well. And then there was some Q&A. And the third evening, they had members of the orchestra and students from Brown speaking on a panel. And they spoke so, about what is home to them, which was very interesting. And then there so was the, the it's, So the orchestra is made up of young people from Israel and Palestine, right? A little bit more than that. It's, it's Israelis, Jews from other countries, Arabs from mm -hmm. everywhere, and also a few Europeans. Mm-hmm. How wow. interesting. Wow. So, so really, Daniel Barenboim was one of the people who, who, you know, I guess he's been doing this for quite a long time now, maybe a couple of decades, but really reaching out across that Jewish-Muslim-Jewish-Arab divide. And so it must have been wonderful for you to connect with him finally. Yes, it was. You know, he and Edward Said put this thing together, and uh, and then he took uh, maybe a year or so ago. He took uh, um, several uh, musicians from Germany, I think from the Berlin Philharmonic to Gaza. Right. And they had a concert there, which was very interesting too. So he's been yeah, he's been at the forefront. He's not shy about his opinions. And uh, we had a, we had a few wonderful conversations, and it was all in all, it was an excellent event. The atmosphere was, was good, and and um, and it was good to be with people who are, um, like I said, the dissonance, the dissonance and harmony. I thought was uh, was an excellent was an excellent uh, term because that's what this whole thing is. You know, we try to find some kind of harmony in this in this dissonance, which is really what it's about. And of course, he does it with music, which is wonderful, and with the, with the orchestra, which is also very controversial. Some people are against it, you know, some people are for it. I mean, there's a lot of uh, controversy around it, too, which is, of course, a very good thing, too. <laughs> great, great. So, yeah, that, so, was, that was a really good uh, way to end this, uh, this uh, three-week uh, or, or month uh, full of events. Although, sadly, you, you, you lost your voice and, and you've been having laryngitis for most of the past 10 days, as far as I can gather. It's, I'm so glad that you've got a little bit of your voice back now. Um, could you just, um, I, I know we're getting near the end of the time, but I, I wanted to really invite you to look back. It's nearly a year since your, your book was published, The General Sun, Journey of an Israeli in Palestine. And, you know, tell me anything that comes to mind when you reflect back what this year of you know, going out there and promoting the book and taking it and meeting new people has really meant for you, and maybe you know a couple of the highlights. Um, well, first of all, I think the fact that the book is uh, the, the most common comment that I get from people who've read the book is that it's given them hope, and so that's been uh, that's been excellent. I don't think I could hope for a better compliment. And it started with uh, right. Alice Walker during in her forward, and ever since you know I hear that all the time, which is fantastic. And then seeing some of the reviews that were written, um, probably um, the most, I don't know if the most interesting, but certainly one of the more interesting ones by Susie Abulhawa about mm -hmm. her process of, of, of reading it and then wanting to put it down and, and you know, and then, mm -hmm. but then being convinced by you to continue and reading all the way through and then finally finding at the end what it was that, um, you know, the end of my journey or my conclusions, which is what the whole thing is about, and I think it speaks to the fact that the book, and, and I know you, we talked this, about this a lot as we were working on the book, uh, to make sure that everything that is 
reflected is reflected honestly based on how I felt and what I was thinking at the time, you know, at, at each period of time as I was going through the journey. And then, then when I was in Jerusalem after Gaza, I gave a talk at the education bookstore, kind of a casual reading, and I was reading through things that I wrote and I could understand the difficulty that Susie and several others have had seen. I was having difficulty reading the things that I wrote about the, this patriotic Israeli point of view, which I had, which is which is honestly what I had. It reflects it reflects mm-hmm. you know very well the way I felt at the time. But reading you know reading it again and 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 just being aware of the language and and, and the emotions that that it represents was was very interesting for me. I, I didn't remember myself being such a uh, you know, such a patriot and using such language as, you know, our country and our independence and, you know, my country and my independence and so forth. So that was very interesting. It was a very interesting reflection for me to be able to do that because I hadn't, I, hadn't, I hadn't realized quite how powerful, I didn't remember quite how powerful it was. And also the journey that I've taken since, since I've been speaking all this time. And, of course, the situation is not static. It, it's moving and developing and, 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 and my journey hasn't ended, of course. And so, seeing where I am today, even in the in the in the in the distance between when the book came out and today, has is, is been a very interesting experience for me as well. So, um, Miko, you've you've gotten, as far as I can gather, really wonderful responses from many of the Palestinians um, who had never heard of you before, and now you're kind of the toast of uh, the Palestinian movement in many respects, which I think you richly deserve because, you know, I I think people respect the honesty with which you wrote your book. Um, Some people ask me, well, how does, you know, what's the response to Miko's book from um, Jewish people in Israel or in the United States or elsewhere? Um, And thus far, I I don't really, you know, I'd, I'd love to hear your reflection on that. The response from Jewish people, by and large, has been phenomenal. Um, I think when people say, often when people say Jewish people here in this country, they mean the Zionist community. Well, the Zionist community, I think, is 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 uh, is obviously doesn't care about the book, doesn't want to talk about it, doesn't want to read about it. But the majority of the Jewish community is not the Zionist community. The majority, and this is something I've learned as well traveling and speaking around the United States, as I have been, there's a, the, the, the larger portion of the Jewish community is a Jewish community that's ever, either never been Zionist because they didn't care or has been, hasn't been Zionist because they realize that Zionist is, is, is a racist ideology. And they were all activist and progressive. So I meet, I meet a lot of Jewish people either as organizers or as um, audiences. Certainly the colleges, a lot of the SJP kids are Jewish kids that are working together with Palestinian kids and others on the campuses. A lot of the peace and justice coalitions, you see a lot of, of course, Jewish activists. And their response has been phenomenal. And, and if anything, I get a sense that, um, that, it fit, that it's encouraging to them to, to, to hear what I have to say um, so that they can continue with the work that they've been doing for a very long time, which is basically pro-Palestinian work and getting the word out and, and, and being creating more of an awareness and giving people who are not Jews the confidence to, to be able to criticize Israel and feel comfortable doing it, not being afraid that they'll be called anti-Semitic, which is, of course, a big, a big problem. Um, and I think this is also the fact that so many Jews uh, do support my work and do, do, do this, I mean, I don't know if it's my work, but are part of this, are part of this effort um, 
is encouraging a lot of churches to move in that direction as well and to support BDS and so forth. So I would say, like I said earlier, I would say that the, the, the Jewish communities that I come in contact with, uh, the, the, the response has been wonderful and phenomenal. Yeah, I think I think that's definitely true from our perspective, you know, shipping books out to various groups here and there to support all your speaking events that many of them are organized, you know, either by Jewish organizations like Jewish Voice for Peace or Jews Say No or other other Jewish explicitly Jewish social justice organizations or by, you know, activists within broader organizations who happen to be Jewish and, um, you know, that you, you really have touched a chord for so many people. Well, I guess our time is, is, get, is coming to an end here um, for this podcast, but I really want to thank you so much because, Miko, it's been a huge honor and a pleasure for me personally to work with you as your publisher. And I think, you know, your book is making a real difference. And I know that you'll be doing more writing, or I hope you'll be doing more writing and publishing in the future. And um, I just feel so proud. And really, you did, you've been doing a super job. And, and I can't say enough how great it is um, to have your book, The General Sun, as one of my first books for my company. So thank you very much. And thank I'm you, sure you and I will be talking again a lot in the future. Absolutely. Thank you, and that you know you can count on me writing some more, writing more in the future. <laughs> oh, that that's great, Miko. Okay, you take care. Have a wonderful weekend. All right, thanks. Bye. Bye, bye. What a courageous and dedicated person Miko Pellad is. I am indeed proud to be his publisher. You can buy his book, The General Sun: Journey of an Israeli in Palestine at our website, www.justworldbooks.com. That's all from me, Helena Cobbin. Check back for more podcasts at our website soon. Thanks for listening.